0: Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, and I'm delighted to have with us Cynthia Sue Larson and Brent Marchand, our two fantastic reviewers. We're going to start with Cynthia Sue. She is a best-selling author, life coach, radio host, and inspirational speaker who is known as the quantum optimist for helping people discover their many possible selves and jump into their favorite lives as they focus on the question, how good can it get? Cynthia has been featured on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, Coast to Coast AM, the BBC, and she has her own show on Dream Vision 7 Radio. You can watch her videos and subscribe to her free e-zine at realityshifters.com. Okay, Cynthia, what do you have to start
1: with? Well, something very timely at this extraordinary moment in history with things like Brexit going on around the world, I've got a book called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. This is by John Perkins. And if you've read the previous edition of the book that came out a number of years ago, then you know something about the concept, which is uh, that the author, John Perkins, he's an insider that actually had a job called Economic Hitman, and this may seem very bizarre, but <laughs> it was to me when I heard about it. But basically, this was an elite secret group of people who would travel to developing countries around the world, presenting overly optimistic economic projections for how quickly these economies would grow once they developed some extremely expensive modern infrastructure projects, building a new power plant, a new dam and so forth and as soon as a country would go into debt they often found out that the economic projections were not working out as scheduled what a surprise because they'd been overly um, optimistic they had been intentionally inflated at which point the country and the leaders would be informed that everything was just fine all they need to do is hand over their resources and assets to american-owned corporations so that's the setup for the the book and it, it that's pretty much what the previous edition of this book had to, to do with. What's exciting about the new edition, and the reason it really ties in with current events, is it shows us what's happening recently. And it goes into the four pillars of modern empire, as Perkins describes, which include fear, debt, insufficiency, which is overconsumption, and a kind of a divide-and-conquer mindset. And, and then what Perkins does is he points out this is happening not just overseas, it's happening right here. And I think that's one of the most shocking revelations in this new Confessions book, pointing out that uh, some of the things, some of the same tactics that corporations have been using so successfully overseas, corporations are now doing to influence political outcomes. And um, it gets more detailed. So that's a, that's just the basic overview and I I also did interview John Perkins on my radio show, Living the Quantum Dream. So I got some of his more extraordinary experiences described, which are just amazing. So this is the kind of book that might seem terrifying when you hear about the, the premise and the background. But overall, it's actually quite optimistic because it ends with a whole section, many chapters at the end of the book that provide inspiration and direction for what each of us can do to take positive action to help ensure that this corporatocracy that had been secretly slowly building up in the background and start um, being can start acting ethically basically behaving more transparently and according to the kind of ethics wishing for the best for all concerned that we the people should be demanding and that's that's part of our role as You know, the U.S. uh, citizens, if you happen to be an American citizen, then you know that we the people is very much part of the equation. So basically Perkins is calling for everyone around the world to start demanding this kind of responsibility for our corporations and our governments, that they be good caretakers, good custodians, and not run amok with unethical, unchecked greed.
0: Cynthia, you truly are a quantum optimist. I mean, if you, could, if you can read that book and be able to put such a positive spin on it, I really take my hat off to you. Well, thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have my work cut out for me.
0: You do, because the, the, the other aspects of the book, which maybe I have a dark mindset, but that really depressed me, were the san- state-sanctioned, U.S. state-sanctioned, uh murders and uh, regime change and um bribery of the heads of state turning them around really blackmail of many heads of state to further the corporate aims of of our own mega corporations is something that we really have to acknowledge and when we have a state of political discourse in this country uh, that is uh, advocating releasing all restraints on corporations, we really have to look back at our own history really clearly and understand what we have done, what the consequences have been, and really take to heart that we need to uh, clean our own stables as well as pointing fingers.
1: Yeah, And I know you read and reviewed this book, too. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. And one thing that I'd like to add to this is this discussion. You're right. Uh, As I was reading the book, I was familiar with the previous edition. So uh, some of those revelations that there have been terrific acts of terrorism on the part of corporate interests. I'm not blaming the entire corporation, but there are people involved in some corporations that have done nefarious deeds involved with changing Uh, like you said, government, um, just taking just tremendously negative, dark actions in that way. And and I'm I'm basically saying, yes, that was also part of the previous version of this book. But now the reason I'm so optimistic is um, it seems like as the truth comes out and people increasingly start recognizing, wow, it's not just the CIA and the MI6 and, you know, secret agencies around the world, but apparently each corporation has their own team of what Perkins calls jackals mm. who are tasked specifically with acts of terror in uh, the service of some specific very focused corporate interest this is a it's indeed quite a dark revelation but I, but again I tend to be an optimist because the fact that this is coming out into the light of day that people can start seeing this to be something that has in fact occurred, that's the beginning of turning something around and recognizing that an author like Perkins, when he himself has had his life threatened, as he describes in the book, it, it, I mean, when this sort of thing happens, it doesn't. It looks like an accident maybe. So if you get po- food poisoning at a restaurant visiting someone, then it might seem like, well, that could have happened anywhere. But when that food poisoning results as it did for Perkins – in hospital emergency room and the emergency surgical removal of most of his intestinal tract, (laughs) that's starting to get, that starts looking like something else. And he, of course, would know that this sort of thing could and does happen. So he's taking a huge risk to step forward and present this story that is a reality for him in the hope and in the, I think he is an optimist, too, that people can start paying attention, that when more of us know what's really going on, then it won't continue to happen the way it has in the past.
0: And that's why we do what we do. Indeed. Brent, on a lighter note. Let's go over to you. Now, Brent Marchant has been a lifelong movie fan and student of metaphysics. He maintains a blog about metaphysical cinema and other self-empowerment topics at Brent brentmarchantsblog.blogspot.com. He's the author of Get the Picture, Conscious Cinema, Conscious Creation Goes to the Movies, and Consciously Created Cinema, the Movie Lover's Guide to the Law of Attraction. Both books provide a reader-friendly look at how these principles are illustrated through film. And I want to congratulate Brent on his book, Get the Picture, being recently named the winner in the New Age nonfiction category for the 2016 National Indie Excellence
2: Awards. Bravo, bravo, Brent. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> okay. I was really quite, quite thrilled to receive that honor. <laughs> I'll bet you were. So tell us
0: about your first film, and we're going to have to cover it
2: pretty quickly. Sure. Um, The first film I want to talk about is a documentary called The Music of Strangers, Yo-Yo Ma, and the Silk Road Ensemble. Uh, It's a wonderful new film that covers the uh, origins and uh, art of the inventive uh, musical ensemble put together by Yo-Yo Ma in uh, 2000. It's continued ever since then. Where he brought together musicians from all over the world, basically to see what can we come up with, and the result is just tremendous. It's a, a movie that features music that's so vibrant, fresh, diverse that you would never, you know, I think, uh, come up with this material in, in conceivably on your own in any in any it, interesting way. Um, uh, it, it tells the stories of several of the musicians. Uh, who are involved in the group, um, which uh, is really in some ways very inspiring, in some ways very heartbreaking. But they've all worked together to produce the sound that's unique uh, and that is really more than just music. It's designed also to help promote cross-cultural understanding, uh, to help promote the idea that we're indeed all connected to one another and that music and art are the universal languages that we can use to not only understand each other, but also to help us to realize that we do have this intrinsic connection that we might not otherwise see. Uh, The movie was directed by Morgan Neville, who a couple years ago won an Oscar for a documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom about the uh, perils and uh, triumphs of backup singers. Uh, I think he's come up with a film here that's probably just as good, if not better, Uh, And you come away from it almost feeling with this infectious enthusiasm to see the the joy that these people have for their art and for everything that they are able to share with their audiences. Uh, It's currently playing in limited release in theaters across the country, but I'm sure it will be available um, online or on DVD probably in the near future. And for those who'd like more detail, uh, there will be an upcoming review uh, on my Blogspot page.
0: And it is called, again, The Music of Strangers. Yes. Lovely. Thank you. Sounds wonderful. Well, maybe there is a theme of timeliness going through today, or certainly between, between, uh, well, through all of us, because my first book, is called A Rage for Order The Middle East in Turmoil from Tahrir Square to ISIS by Robert F. Worth. I originally picked up this book hoping to find some understanding of the absolute insanity engulfing the Middle East and expanding around the world. It just is so astonishing to us in the West that savagery of such unbridled proportions could be happening in this time and age. And Robert Worth is a journalist absolutely blessed by the most beautiful writing and the most broad understanding of the Middle East, of its culture, its language, its people. And he tells the story, he weaves first hand personal accounts of people that he has um, m- lived with met side by side for for many years and followed them across years to pa- to trace the development of their hopes, the Arab Spring and how their hopes were dashed, how they became entrenched in their positions people from the the, the the young people uh, hoping for regime change the, the people from the Muslim Brotherhood intellectuals statesmen top statesmen and and even plain uh, soldiers and and uh, people from every walk of life um, poets artists journalists this book gives an unparalleled um, understanding of the The, the tortuous currents that swirl around like, like a maelstrom in the Middle East. We have to understand that we're not talking about a monolithic culture. We're talking about the Iranians are, are Persian. They are, uh, they believe that they are the keepers of the pure Sunni, uh, form of Islam. Um, the Saudis are Shia. They are the keepers of this offshoot that followed the uh, faith promulgated by the son-in-law Ali. Then there are the Alawis, um, as- Assad in Syria. This started as a sect in the mountains of Syria. It was a mystical sect. It it had as much reverence. Um, for for Plato and Aristotle as Muhammad and Jesus. Um, but they were considered heretics by the rest. And so when Assad came to power, he did a deal and he got his sect recognized um, as legitimate. But he We we now understand, or I understand from from the book now, that he is in a life and death struggle because if he loses power, then his whole sect will be wiped out. I mean, the the bloodletting, the tribalism, the savagery on all sides um, goes back many, many centuries, and it has been fomented and abetted by the External interests as well as internal interests, as people wanting to keep power, um, or, or, uh, use the struggles as their own proxies, you know, uh, powers like the Russians and, and the Americans and the Saudis and the Iranians. They're all using the poor people as surrogates for their own power plays. So, I can't say that I emerged from reading this book with any sense of optimism whatsoever, but the only, I guess, bright hope I can have is something that Cynthia echoed earlier, that by understanding what really is going on, um, it all is being brought up to the surface at this time, And only when you really understand what's happening can you have any hope whatsoever of dealing with it. Um, ISIS today has to be understood against the background of many centuries of oppression of the the common man in in the Arab countries, where they're only the straw that they were clutching on. Was their sense of piety and their sense of reward in the other world? Because otherwise, um, their lives had no meaning and were only dark and senseless. And um, there, there was one one f- uh, uh, activist from Tahrir Square who became a um, a jihadi. And uh, what he said in his last um, Twitter text or or Facebook before he blew himself up, was that um, when he saw the flag of ISIS flying over the city with the slogan, there is no God but our God, he said, you have this feeling that we have our own state. It's small, but it is so important. You have a feeling of belonging. Everybody is looking for a feeling of belonging. Belonging. And when we see the alienated Muslims who have grown up, uh, many have been born in the U.S., in Britain, in, in France, and they are alienated, it's because they do not have a sense of belonging where they are, and they are looking for a greater sense of belonging. We have to understand this and start to deal with our Muslim friends and neighbors as being one of us, not as being other. So it's A Rage for Order by Robert Worth. Cynthia, do you have something more uplifting?
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) And actually, I just visited Kuwait um, last year and had great experiences with Muslims, but I'm going to move on to the book, which is called Spontaneous Urban Plants, Weeds in New York City. And (laughs) I know the cover is really cute because it just says, sup, you know, S-U-P, the way people do in young people these days. What's up? And it's all about the way that we can start re-envisioning the role of weeds in urban ecosystems. This book specifically looks at the weeds in New York City including trees such as the silk tree, Albizia julibrissin, And so if you flip open the book to a random page like I just did, you'll see on the left it describes seed dispersal, flowering, and leaf growth, and then some details about how this is a medicinal plant, which has been known to be helpful for people who need to overcome problems with digestive disorders. Uh, they require a sedative or treatment of insomnia, irritability, and breathlessness. And it Has cute pictures of the flowers, talks about bees and butterflies and hummingbirds that enjoy the plant. And the goal of this whole project, if you're wondering who on earth would write a book about weeds, uh, the author is part of the Future Green Studio, the award-winning Future Green Studio in New York. And basically he explains that their goal is to question the interpretations of weeds and the top-down approach to mapping urban space while at the same time instigating a more robust discussion on the role of spontaneous urban plants in our climate-adapted future. So in other words, we may think we're, we know what we're doing when the city planners uh, decide how things will be laid out, but in a very real sense, nature has its own way of redesigning, and sometimes birds and other animals will distribute the seeds in ways that are kind of surprising. When you go through this book, you'll notice that there are really strong benefits in some cases to plants that provide stormwater retention. And so there's less flooding in the city than might otherwise have been the case, thanks to the weeds that are absorbing massive amounts of rainfall, for example. And that's what the author means when he talks about the advantage that some of these weeds can confer upon all of us. So. It's, it is a very positive book. I love the pictures. I love the, the way you can just sort of flip through this and feel uplifted that these are medicinal, healing, food, plants that are beautiful. And you start getting this whole new view of the way we interact with nature and the way that nature has a wonderful way of just springing up from asphalt, sidewalk, and everywhere that you might not expect it to be. And I've seen this myself, which is why I invited this book to come to me because I'd driven past a a California freeway ramp that had become overgrown with weeds in just a few months. It looked so surreal. And it surprised me. I thought, wow, it just takes a few months for a freeway to be overgrown. That's amazing. So that was what led me to be curious about someone who devoted an entire book to the subject.
0: Well, one man's weed is another man's wildflower. That's right. It's interesting that this uh, weed that you mentioned growing in the city spontaneously for indigestion, where people transplanted to the city living on fast food probably have that complaint pretty often.
1: That's right. And insomnia, too. <laughs> I was noticing that. I <laughs> yeah, just happened to flip open to that, book, that page. There are so many good pictures.
0: Nature is so interconnected. It's absolutely amazing. So, Brent, we're going to have to start with you, and then we may have to break it, um, and we'll pick up with you after the break. So tell us what your next movie is.
2: Well, picking up again on the idea of creative collaboration, uh, my next film is titled Genius, which is a biographical picture telling the life story of uh, a a man named Maxwell Perkins, who was a literary editor of Charles Scribner's sons back in the 1920s and 30s who had worked with a number of uh, uh, rising stars at the time, like Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and most notably Thomas Wolfe. Now, it's unusual to see any, any kind of a, uh, artistic vehicle focusing on the role of the editor. They're usually the behind-the-scenes person who you never see or hear from. But it's really crucial in this story because it shows the importance of what it is to have a collaborator with, working with you to bring about a finished result that everybody can really enjoy. Um, Perkins is played by Colin Firth, the Academy Award winner for The King's Speech. And he's working primarily with Thomas Wolfe, played by Jude Law. And it's really interesting to see the dynamics going on between the two because Perkins is very buttoned down. He's very uh, particular about what words get used, what parts of the story come through. And Wolfe, who is this completely unrestrained wild man who really needs to have his work reined in to make it marketable and um feasible for people to get through um, and uh, what's the name again it's called genius genius i
0: absolutely love colin firth
2: it's a really it's a it's a wonderful picture particularly for its performances colin firth and jude law are both spectacular in their roles uh the film also features tremendous production values of period and some really interesting cinematography there's um it's going into the depression, so the, uh, the whole mood is uh, somewhat bleak, and that's uh, shown by the kind of washed-out color with the way the, uh, the film has been um, uh, photographed. Um, but really what I loved about this movie is it showed uh, the collaborative process at work and how really we all need uh, an editor in one form or another to help us um, define ourselves, to restrain ourselves, but we also need that wild creative spirit uh, that allows us to break through barriers and push boundaries that we might not have seen before. And that's really embodied by the two characters presented here. Um, Perkins is really the one who has to rein in Wolf, but Wolf is also the one who basically says, I have to let this creative force just come bounding forth in all full flowers so that everyone can see not just what I can do, but what's possible. Um the movie does have a little bit of a problem in, in that it tries to cover an awful lot of ground in its uh, hour and 45 minutes, I believe that it runs the runtime. And some of the ideas don't quite always get fully fleshed out, um, particularly when you're getting into some of the uh, the personal relationships of the two lead characters as well, uh, their love interests who are played in the film by Nicole Kidman and Laura Linney. Um, but otherwise this is really an, an interesting meditation and a thoughtful exercise on the idea of what it is to be a creative sort and how to strike a balance between being able to fully express yourself, but also using discernment to be able to bring the message down in a way that's going to be accessible and understandable by the people who are going to be, um, the readers.
0: Mm. Sounds wonderful. That was genius. And is it currently playing?
2: Yes, it's currently playing. Um, it's not in really wide release, but it's in kind of like moderate release. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will be, um, there'll be a full review forthcoming shortly on the, bo- uh, the blog page of my website.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Cynthia, back to you. What have um, you got next?
1: Well, my next book is called Consciousness and the Social Brain. And I was fascinated by the topic because it explains awareness as being a kind of attention schema so that in other words um, we have a basis by which to explore all of our various intuitions cultural myths and research studies and take a look at the way the representations inside of our brain which is the information content of awareness um, has not really been studied as well as it could be there's been a bit of a gap there and so the author of this book michael Graziano. He explains the reason for that as being due to the fact that most researchers assume that awareness is not composed of information, but is assumed to be something more. And I should state at this point that basically uh, Graziano is a self-described atheist. So he's taking a point of view that some of the listeners on this show, myself included, might not agree with. Um, but I like to read books by other you know people with different viewpoints. And I think that some of what he's describing is is quite interesting, because Graziano is describing consciousness as an epiphenomenon. So, and he says that, I seem to be saying a puppet can be conscious, a tree can be conscious, a hunk of rock can be conscious. They can all be conscious in more or less the same sense that a human is conscious. And then he explains his reason for it, which is where some people might part ways with him. And he says, this: the reason is that according to the attention schema theory, Human consciousness is not quite what we think it is. It is not something a person has floating inside. It is an attribution. It's a relationship between an attributor and an attributee. And so that's, I think this is very interesting and thought-provoking, and he's basically saying awareness helps track and predict attention, which then helps us to better predict the behaviors of everything and everyone around us. And so here, attention and awareness are differentiated between. They're not the same thing. Awareness is the sort of subconscious quality that we can sort of sense things happening. And what we put our attention on tends to be more conscious. And so uh, Graziano does pull back from where he seemed to be heading toward pantheism. And then he says consciousness should only be attributed to actual biological beings with complex brains, not to plants, animals, or the elements. So this is real thought-provoking book. It's the kind of thing you can read and talk about with other people interested in consciousness. I love that. And so he basically, the author expresses bewilderment at people who view the world from a spiritual perspective, such as myself and probably most people listening to this show. Um, But he does recognize there are evolutionary and beneficial reasons for the human built-in preference for spirituality. So I do recommend this book. It's very thought-provoking and definitely will get you more
0: involved in finding out what's
1: going on with the research in these areas. So
0: I'm a little confused. He does believe that a rock has consciousness or he doesn't? I know.
1: (laughs) Good point. He's basically saying it does, but it's not the same as human
0: consciousness. It's a rock consciousness. Right. And that's
1: very similar to I know a
0: lot of humans who have a rock consciousness. Yeah, that could it could happen.
1: So it's but it tends to be species specific. There are hardwired elements in our brains. We tend to re- babies recognize faces, they're hardwired to learn languages. There's a lot that we just come into the world ready to do for no apparent reason. I mean, there's no we don't yet know why that is. So it's it is interesting.
0: Well, I suppose if you consider the human form as being a function of our consciousness which is the eternal part of us, that there's no reason why Uh, that shouldn't extend to all creation anyway. um, Yeah, I agree with that. We don't want to go too deeply into the weeds, but um, as you say, (laughs) food for thought. (laughs) Well, as long as we're in the weeds, I might as well stay there. Um, My book is called Our Dolphin Ancestors, Keepers of Lost Knowledge and Healing Wisdom by Frank Joseph. This is a delightful book because he goes into, um, not only the history of, dol- uh, the, the, tracing the history of dolphins throughout mythology. They have, for some reason, um, had a very central position in the art and the history and the mythology of civilizations as, as back as recorded, um, history allows. And he would take it back even further because he himself has written a number of books on Atlantis and Lemuria. But then he goes into the physical aspects of dolphins, and he kind of traces them back to what he calls aquatic apes, which are ape ancestors who were caught, caught at the time of the flood and started walking upright to keep their heads above water and feeling for food with their feet on the bottom. And some of them, when the waters receded, went back onto the land, and the others, he proposes, um, migrated into the sea. And in fact, if you look at an X-ray of a dolphin embryo, you can see fully articulated um, thighs and knees and feet and toes. And they look, to all intents and purposes, like a human embryo. Um, what is even more amazing are the reports of, of interactions between dolphins and human beings. Um, whether it's to people swimming with dolphins, where dolphins have been demonstrated to have an uncanny ability to hone in on areas of cancer or areas of illness and um, bombard them with their sonar. And many spontaneous, quote, unquote, healings have been reported as a result. Or at least uh, people who have had um, uh, dolphin attention have then gone on to have scans and then discovered that the dolphin was focusing on an incipient tumor. Um, there are other stories of... Um, dolphins having amazing cognitive abilities. There is this one dolphin in New Zealand who used to shepherd ships through some very, very treacherous straits. And um, uh, it was called the Graveyard of Ships. And there was uh, one incident, and this dolphin did it for for 20 years, there was one incident where um, some sailor took a pot shot at the dolphin And the dolphin never showed up for that particular ship, uh, which subsequently went down. So um, many fascinating, fascinating anecdotes. And it really gives us pause as to who our ancestors were. And uh, it makes a kind of intriguing case for dolphins being in the family tree. So that was Our Dolphin Ancestors by Frank Joseph. Um, Brent, can you give us a quick little movie?
2: Sure, continuing with the creative collaboration theme, uh, my next film is another musical documentary titled Presenting Princess Shaw, which is a wonderful and uplifting little film that tells the story of an aspiring singer-songwriter from New Orleans named Samantha Montgomery, who goes by the stage name uh, Princess Shaw. And she's been working a long time, struggling, trying to get her name known, um, but doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, so one of the things that she does is she, she takes to YouTube to put out videos where she performs her work, uh, primarily a cappella. Meanwhile, across the world, there's a composer and video artist named uh, Kutiman, uh, who lives in Israel and has developed a reputation for sampling the works from amateur musicians who appear on YouTube, combining it with his own uh, orchestrations and coming up with completely new uh, forms of artwork, uh, both speaking in terms of music and in video. And he ends up coming across Princess Shaw's videos, and he's just utterly captivated and decides, there must be something that I can do with this. So the documentary focuses on these two people from opposite parts of the world um, with their various projects and eventually coming together, showing how the two of them have collaborated to produce this wonderful new um, you know, art form that's both visual and musical at the same time. And it's interesting because um, Kudiman tends to work uh, somewhat anonymously when he's initially doing his setups. So Princess Shaw is completely unaware that any of this is going on until she sees a reworked video of her song appear on YouTube, and she's just utterly floored by the result that's come up and with the success that comes from it.
0: How wonderful. So it's called Presenting Princess Shaw.
2: Is it in theaters? It's in theaters, and it's also available for video on demand.
0: Great. Cynthia, what is your final book today?
1: My final book today has to do with pressure points. It's called The Power of Pressure Points. It's written by Barry Harmon. And the subtitle is The Most Common and Effective Martial Art Pressure Points. So while it seems very specific, and actually it is, it's, it's actually a good book for anyone interested in Qi or chi, the, the energy within our bodies, and fascinated by the meridian system, these inner energy channels that coordinate with one another, empty into one another, and ultimately connect every cell in the body with the body's energetic system. And there has been some scientific validation for this whole thing recently, if people are following the news about that. So I love the way this book has two chapters that go into greater depth, covering the very special relationships between these meridian systems and each other. And it goes through 12 major channels and six special channels with illustrations. And that's one of the things I love about this book also, is the way that sections for each Pressure point page describes the most effective strikes to the point as well as observed effects, known effects, and theoretical effects. And that would be that some of these pressure points can be fatal or lethal. So that's why people don't experiment with them, but it's been known <laughs> historically, yes, I know. Like, um,
0: Not twice anyway.
1: Yeah, this is definitely, don't try this at home. Um, you know, So this kind of book is good for people who already have some kind of an energy or martial arts practice, what I also think is fascinating, and people that know this, the meridian systems already might be aware, that some of the deadliest, most dangerous pressure points can be used for healing. So they are energy cross points where the the meridians come together, where there's a special correlation between the channels, and you can therefore tune in and actually use the book for clearing headaches for eliminating gas and alleviating itching uh, relieving mental stresses and getting to a place where um, you know, you can ease the, the passage for childbirth. You can also reduce severe depression. And so there are tremendous healing opportunities in this book as well. And that's why I find it really a remarkable book, which has illustrations. Oh, that's what I was going to say. As you go to each page, There would be an illustration uh, pointing out which meridian the pressure point is on, the location of it, and then there's a little insert box describing what sort of strikes are most effective, and then those observed effects, known effects, theoretical. And then it it further has these healing primary actions and functions as well. So uh, that's not surprising to people who are familiar with this sort of thing, but some people might be surprised. And what makes the book especially wonderful for me is that it's written by the first American master in Kuxulwan. That's Barry Harmon. He's now a ninth degree black belt. And he acknowledges that this information comes directly from his mentor, who's the Grand Master of Kuxulwan in Hyuksa who is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the subject of ki, in martial arts. So, I really do recommend this book. I love the matter of fact style and the poetic verse. I love the line in the book that says, benefits the brain, calms the spirit, and nourishes the sea of marrow. <laughs> so, you just kind of get that feeling like, wow, this is old wisdom here. <laughs> and I love it. I do practice Kukso on myself. I'm a second-degree black belt, so I'm speaking also from experience as a martial artist, so if people are wondering, yeah, but is this really great if you're a martial artist, absolutely, highly recommended.
0: The Power of Pressure Points by Barry Harmon. Yes. Cool. Okay, Brent, over to you.
2: Well, so far we've focused on uh, some of the uh, smaller films that have come out this summer, which is usually a time that's dominated by the big blockbuster releases, Um, One of which that I really do recommend highly is the animated sequel to Finding Nemo, which is titled Finding Dory. I love Um, cartoons. It's just such a charmer. It's a movie that's really going to appeal to both adults and to kids. Um, The story picks up where the last one left off. uh, After the two characters from the previous film are reunited after being separated, it inspires Dory, a little bluefish. Um, who has been separated from her family to go out and do the same thing that her friend had done in the previous film. There's just one little problem. She suffers from short-term memory loss. <laughs> so in the process of trying to uh, carry out this major task of finding folks that she's been separated from, she can hardly remember from moment one moment to the next what she did to get to the point where she's at now.
0: I sympathize, um,
2: Dory. Yes, <laughs> Um, It's really a lot of fun. It has a lot of interesting characters, many of whom are brought back from the first film. Many new ones are introduced in this film. Uh, It has a huge all-star cast of voices. Uh, The lead character, Dory, is voiced by Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, Her primary friend, um, uh, Nemo, and and his father, Marlon, uh, features the return of Albert Brooks. Uh, and then you have a whole host of other people doing supporting roles, including Idris Elba, Ed O'Neill, um, Ty Burrell, uh, Diane Keaton, uh, Eugene Levy. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it really is for, it makes for a lot of fun from start to finish. But the thing I find most interesting about it is it's a film that, you know, at least ostensibly, Uh, focuses on the idea of finding one's family, but it's really about finding oneself in the course of that same process. And uh, the film really brings that out in a a wonderfully warm, uh, poignant way without being too heavy-handed, and it does so in a very fun and playful environment, which just makes for wonderful viewing for adults and kids alike. Uh, It's in theaters. Uh, It's available both in 3D version and non-3D version, And um, if you want to see a complete review, you can look to my website and you'll see it on there. Beautiful. Finding Dory.
0: Well, um, I've got just a couple of minutes to talk about my book, my last book, called I'm Right and You're an Idiot. The Toxic State (laughs) of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up by James Hogan. Um, This was really a revelatory book for me, and another one that is just so relevant to the times. When we listen to the uh, dynamics between the the parties, uh, a lot of that is illuminated in this book, because he says that on the one hand, you need... Uh, to mobilize the base, as they say. You need to polarize people to move them into action. But the only way to really get anything done is then to be able to step back from that polarized position and work together. And that's where our political system has totally broken down. We have this disconnect. We feel that we have to hold this entrenched position and anybody who is guilty of actually possibly compromising is called a flip-flopper or you know doesn't have doesn't know what they want and, and they're accused of changing their position instead of congratulated for it. Um, there's a wonderful quote by um uh, Kahana who quotes theologian Paul Tillich who said the power is the drive of everything living to realize itself With increasing intensity and extensity. And love is the drive to unify the separated. And it's really this second piece of the puzzle that we have totally lost sight of. Because we can't really solve the tough problems by working just on our little piece. We can't transform large systems by working only with people that we like, with our friends and colleagues. We have to learn to work with strangers, with opponents, people we don't know or even trust. And without this simple awareness, we will have gridlock. Does that strike a bell anywhere? Wow.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I love the title. I have to read that.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> is so timely. It is so timely. Absolutely. And, you know, even reflecting on this book, A Rage for Order, uh, that I, I mentioned earlier, in Egypt, there was this um, collaboration between, the, no, not Egypt, in Tunisia, collaboration between two old men, each leader of opponent, opposing parties. And they met secretly, and then they, they undertook to bring their parties into line. And being the grand old man, they were able to wield considerable pressure and little by little, they, they forced the parties into collaboration. And so Tunisia is the only country, um, who that, and Tunisia was where the Arab Spring started. That's where this, this vendor burned himself in the public square in, in protest against this feudal lord who had been, uh, entrenched in power for so many years. Anyway, so they actually had, been able to craft a collaborative government. They say that when everybody is mad at you, you know you're doing something right. So um, they're, they're going on, and Tunisia actually had a good chance of making it. And then what happens is Tunisia doesn't have any oil or natural resources. They had a phosphate plant that closed down, but they did have tourism, and so what happens, ISIS comes along and they bomb this museum and then they bomb a resort and so even the tourist trade has dried up. And that's that's the the unspeakable tragedy of what's happening there when there are people of goodwill trying to do good things. These these um uh, jihadis I guess they they call themselves. Um, come and screw it all up, wanting to drag things back into polarization. There there was another fascinating comment in, sorry to go back to a rage for order, but they were saying that um, uh, jihad has nothing to do with Islam. Jihad is about savagery, is about force and massacre. And so... We have to understand that this is not Islam. So, people, get along with each other. Love each other. Come on. It's all we can do. Show the way. Thank you, Cynthia, Sue, and Brent. Love you guys. Thank you. Awesome Thank you show. so much. Thank you for listening. Join us next week I'm Miriam Knight. Love each other, darlings. Bye-bye.